0: Well, for the past few weeks, we've been in a teaching series in what's called the Book of Exodus. It's a story about a holy and good and mighty God. It's a story about the greatest redemptive event in the history of God's people before the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's about the people, like Moses, the central figure in the story, who got to experience this firsthand for themselves. And today, the story of Exodus is going to take us back to Egypt. For the last few weeks, we've been in the wilderness, in the desert, outside of Egypt. But today, we're going back with Moses and with God to Egypt. And we're going to begin to see some of the deeper purposes for which God is going to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. That's where we're going today. So let's pick it up. Let's jump right in in chapter four, starting in verse 18. We see. Exodus, say this, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And so for the first time since chapter three, we are stepping off holy ground in this passage. We're not at the burning bush anymore. We're not in the middle of this conversation between God and a man named Moses that happened there. That conversation is over. Moses has wrestled with God. He's asked God his questions. He's put up the roadblocks and expressed his doubts about why he can't do what God is asking him to do. And God... Each time has graciously met Moses in those doubts in those questions in that space that he is inhabiting and reminded him Moses it's not about you I will be with you I will do this through you Moses all you need to do is give me your yes and come with me to do this thing that I'm going to do in Egypt this was the lesson that we learned alongside Moses last week is that what God asks us to do is always more about God than it is about us. When God shows up and he says to you or to me, go talk to that person, go listen to that person, go pray for that person, follow me here, Uh, go and do this thing in the world, don't do that, or I've got something I wanna do, I got something that I wanna redeem in this city or this nation or the world, and I want you to come and do it with me. When God says that, It can be scary it can be overwhelming but the good news is as we learned last week is that we don't have to rely on our own strength our own wisdom our own ability to go and do that we can actually rely on god's that god has promised us that he will go with us that it's more about him doing through us and for us than it is about us and that's going to change everything it changed everything for moses it changed everything for him to know finally that it's not about what he could do or what he thought was possible. It was about what God was going to do and what was possible for God. And Moses, well, he had to learn that and we need to learn that. And we learned it alongside him. And so as this story starts today, as we come on the other side of this holy ground moment, Moses, he's now learned that lesson to some degree and he is on board. He is now going to go with God back to Egypt and join him in what he wants to do there. And what we shouldn't see though, as we begin, is a Moses with every doubt and every question uh, and every struggle erased forever. What we shouldn't see is a Moses who will never struggle again with God and what God asks him to do. See, I don't think that would be true to the human experience. I don't think that would be true to the story of God in Exodus um, as it goes on. I don't think that's how we should use it because the reality is, is that Moses Even though he is now going, he still struggled. He still had moments where he questioned God and got discouraged. There were still moments of ups and downs and everything in between. It was still not always easy for Moses to join God in what he wanted him to do. And we don't even have to wait that long to see this. I mean, next week, we're going to talk about this. Moses, he gets really discouraged and he gets angry with God because God doesn't do the things that he wants him to do, that things aren't going to go the way that Moses thought they would. And so as we go along and as Moses starts returning to Egypt let's not forget that the struggles we have may go with us as we go with God that they may rise up from time to time and maybe the new experiences we have are going to create new struggles and new challenges and new questions for us that's just a part of what it means to follow Jesus it's not always easy it's not always clear cut it's not always smooth and neatly organized but here's the thing the struggle is worth it because Jesus is worth it. God is worth it. This holy God, this caring and loving and powerful God, he is worth it. And what we need to see is that, like Moses, we learn to trust God on our journey with God. See, as we get to go with God, as we take that step of faith, as we move out in faith, we get to know God. We get to see him in action. We get to see him keep his promises. We get to see him come through for us in those moments of uncertainty. We get to see that for ourselves and that in it of itself is gonna build trust, it's gonna strengthen our faith. And as we journey with him, the truth is, is we're gonna to learn to trust him in greater ways. We're gonna see that with Moses. And so what I don't want us to see is Moses going from the burning bush with everything erased, there is still struggle for him. And what we need to remember is that all God is asking us to do is to take that next step. All he's asking us to do is to take that first step. And that's how the journey with God begins. See, I love what Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, says about faith. He said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. See, I, I love that. See, see, you might be here today and listening to this and you may not see the whole staircase but God does. You may not see every step on the way to the place that you feel God is leading you, but God does. Faith invites you to take that first step and trust the one who sees the whole picture. And so for Moses, and for us, there's gonna be lingering doubts. There's gonna be times with low level of trust, but Moses is taking the first step in this story. He leaves holy ground, he heads home, and then ultimately he heads to Egypt, but remember, he doesn't go alone. We get a reminder of that God is with him in verse 20. We read in in verse 20 that Moses took the staff of God with him, and this this might seem like a throwaway comment, but it isn't. It's actually a really important comment because the staff is gonna play a a central role in the story moving forward, and God's already alluded to the staff several times in chapters three and chapters four. And so when, when it says that Moses is going with the staff of God, it's a reminder that God's presence and power is going with Moses because this is the staff of God. It's not just a, a piece of wood. It's not just a normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill staff. This is the staff of God. It doesn't mean that God is in the staff. It's actually a symbol. The staff is a symbol of God's presence and God's power. It's a symbol of his authority and his supremacy. And that means that Moses holds in his hand the presence of power and power of God. That it's a symbol of that, that God pre- is present and his power is with him, that Moses is going back to Egypt, not by himself, not just with his family, but with God. And so Moses is on on his way. The course is set. He's headed back to Egypt with his family and with God. And on the way, God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, this is what's going to happen when you arrive in Egypt. Look at verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So in Exodus, we've said this already. The main character is God. He's the author, the hero, the catalyst of everything that happens. He is the the writer and the executor of this story that we are in. So God is the main character. And like every good story, there's a villain. Someone who stands up against the hero, who, whose goals are different, whose goals might be evil, who will do everything in their power to win, to stop the hero. Think Darth Vader in Star Wars or uh, Sauron in the Lord of the Rings, the Joker in Batman, Lord Voldemort in Harry Potter, Thanos in Infinity War and Endgame. In the Bible, think Satan, the adversary, the accuser of God and his people, the evil one. So every story often has a villain. Every great story has a villain. And here in Exodus, we're introduced to that person. It's Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He's the antagonist. He is going to be the obstacle in the way of what God wants to do for his people in Egypt. And the thing is, we don't really know historically who this Pharaoh is, but doesn't really matter in the end because in the Bible, Pharaoh is this symbolic figure who represents oppression and evil authority over others. And the country that the Pharaoh rules Egypt, it also represents what is opposed to God. And so Moses is going to Egypt. He's going to a place that is opposed to God to its leader who is seen as a God, who is opposed to everything of God and is an evil authority over others. And so he's not just going to go face the leaders of God's people. Moses is going to have to face Pharaoh too, the one who is oppressing God's people, the one who is holding them captive. And in these verses, we see two things about what is going to unfold in Egypt. The first is that God is going to free his people. Pharaoh is not going to win this battle. He won't be the victor. God will. God is going to break the chains of his people's slavery by showing Pharaoh just how powerful and just how great and glorious he is. And Pharaoh, if you notice, he will struggle to let God's people go, but he will let them go. It's only a matter of time. And so God is going to free his people, but here's the second thing. It's not going to be easy. It won't. This is something God's already made clear to Moses back in chapter 3. Verse 19 there, it says, But I know, this is God talking, But I know that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand, and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And so God has just finished telling Moses, I am going to bring my people out. I will give you my name, they will listen to my voice, I will set my people free, but don't expect it to be easy. In fact, I'm gonna have to use my mighty power, the power of creation, the power over heaven and earth to make it happen. So rescue in Egypt is going to happen, but it's gonna take God doing what only God can do, to see it happen, because Pharaoh is not going to release Israel easily. And the reason why Mysteriously, in verse 21, it, God says this, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, that's kind of a strange comment from God. I mean, doesn't God want Pharaoh to let his people go? Doesn't he want to see them free? Doesn't he want to lead them to the land of blessing and fruitfulness to have all that he created them and promised them to have? So, why is God saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, Pastor Nathan is going to do a deeper dive on this in a few weeks as we look at this ultimate battle between God and Pharaoh and the plagues that are going to come. But for now, let me say that Pharaoh's heart, being hardened, actually has two sources, his own stubbornness and his own unwillingness to bend to what God wants. And the other source is God himself. See, this is where we are confronted by the mystery of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Sometimes, as we see this story unfold, sometimes Pharaoh is going to be the one who is going to harden his heart towards God and what he's asking him to do. And sometimes God is actively gonna work in a mysterious way in his heart to make him resistant to what God is asking him to do. And the reality is, is that Exodus and the Bible, it's comfortable with both, even if we aren't, because we tend to lean towards one or the other, but the Bible just acknowledges this mystery, human responsibility, divine sovereignty. But in the middle of all that, the, the, the key thing to know is that as, the, as this confrontation goes on, as it goes further and further, and the longer it goes on, it actually starts to turn towards solely Pharaoh as the sole source for his heart being hardened. God's part to play begins to lessen, and it's about Pharaoh's stubbornness that becomes the focus. And so this is not going to be an easy thing. Rescue is going to to take time. It's going to be a battle. It's going to require effort. Stuff is going to have to happen. It's going to require God to exercise his unrivaled power to do it. And in that, what we're going to see is that Yahweh is going to show Pharaoh, Egypt, his people, and us that Yahweh is God and Pharaoh is not. That Yahweh the God of heaven and earth, the God we are here worshiping and talking about this morning, he is greater than Pharaoh and any other God in Egypt or any other God from any other religious worldview in the world, this God is God. Pharaoh is not, the gods of Egypt are not. And that's the outcome that's gonna unfold in the pages ahead, but this is the confrontation that is coming and God is letting Moses in on that confrontation. But it's what God, what God says next that reveals something really important and where I, I believe God wants us to kind of dig deeper into today. Look at verse 23. And when Moses talks to God, he says, "'Let my son go, that he may serve me.'" So this is about God's glory. It's about God's power. It's about God's rule and reign over all things, including Pharaoh, but it's also about worship. See, that word serve in the original language, it's worship language. When you look into that word in Hebrew, it has a variety of meanings, one of which is worship. And so what that means is that God has a purpose for rescue that, just, that goes beyond just simply freeing his people from slavery. I mean, that's beautiful, that's amazing, that is more than enough, but God even goes beyond that. It means that God wants to free his people from something to something. He wants to free them from slavery in Egypt to life in his presence and to worship and serve him. That's the deeper, the greater purpose of what God is doing here. It's so that Israel can go from serving Pharaoh to serving and worshiping Yahweh. I like how Michael Morales writes about this. He's a scholar uh, and he writes this about what, what is happening here in the text. He says, liberation, so freedom, being set free, is being set free to serve Yahweh, the one true and living God. Typical of the Hebrew language in general, the word for serve, avad, is open to a variety of meanings, including to slave and to worship. And the Exodus narrative may be read as a transition from Israel's slavery under Pharaoh to Israel's obedience and worship. Of Yahweh. And so the picture of rescue that's being painted is one of captivity to worship, from slavery to service, from life in Egypt to a life in the presence of God, from being set free from something to something. And so here's the question that I was asking and as I was engaging with this throughout this week is, why does God rescue? What does God free his people from Egypt for? Because if you notice, God has a special place in his heart for his people. They are his firstborn son. The images of a father who wants to, who loves and cares for a firstborn son. And so what we see is that God has a special place in his heart for Israel, that they're not just one nation among any others. They're God's chosen people, his children. And God wants to be in relationship with them. It's why he's acting to rescue them. It's why he's going to do mighty things to set them free. He loves them. They have a special place in his heart, and he wants to bring them into a life with him, which can be summed up and defined as worship. And this is a thread that's been running all the way through the story since chapter 3. If you go back to chapter three, verse 12, God says, you will serve me on this mountain. That same word uh, for serve is used in chapter three as it is used in our text today. In verse 18, God talks about sacrificing to him. He's gonna lead his people out so they can have a worship service where they sacrifice and they praise God through those sacrifices. It's a thread that has led up to this moment and it's a thread that's gonna continue after this moment in places like chapter five, verse three or 7.16, one and more, all of us, all of it bringing us to the truth that the kind of rescue that God is going to orchestrate is always from something to something. And in this case, it's from slavery in Egypt to worship of God in his presence. This is ultimately why God has come to rescue his people. Yes, we've seen already that he loves them and he cares about what is going on in their lives. He sees and he knows the struggle that his people go through. Yes, his people have a special place in his heart, and he's committed himself to them. Yes, he wants to see them free from slavery, but not just free from that, free to live a life before the living God, a life that is defined as worship, which is all of life lived in response to a great and a good God who has done mighty things for his people. That's, that's worship, and that's why God is doing this. That's the trajectory of the Exodus story. From the beginning to end, the trend is to worship of God in his presence at a mountain called Sinai and in the tabernacle at the very end of the book. It all culminates in worship. And that's the trajectory of our text today, too, as Moses, in verse 27, finally arrives in Egypt. You'll notice there's a little story in between um, that's probably one of the strangest stories in the Scripture. It's about circumcision and about Moses being prepared and his children being prepared to be in line with God's covenant demands and requests. It's a strange story. You can read it on your own. But the purpose that God has for rescue, it's, it's in Egypt. And that's where this story ends in verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, so this is Moses' brother. He says, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So Aaron went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. So it's this image of tearful, joyous embrace after seeing, not seeing someone for a long time. Verse 28, Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So finally, the story gets back to Egypt. And everything that God has said up to this point to Moses happens. All the promises God made, all the things that God unfolded to Moses and said would happen, it actually happens. Moses and Aaron share God's message with God's people. They perform those miraculous signs of of the staff into the snake and the the, the healthy skin to the diseased skin and the, the blood of the water of the Nile turning into blood. They perform those miraculous signs and the people listen and they believe all of it, leading them to bow their heads And with worship, which means that they actually knelt before God and paid homage to him. For this God who had visited them, this God who was doing miraculous things in their eyes, and this God who has promised to set his people free, they worshipped. And it's the only response that makes any kind of sense in the presence of a God this great and this good. It truly is. And I like what Ruth Chow Simmons says about this. She says, a holy God made a way for all who believe to come to him by first coming to us. Let that sink in. God's promises, fulfilled by God himself, are more than remarkable. They merit a response, not to get busy, but to fall down in reverence and awe for our great God. I mean, this is lived out right here in this text. God moved first. God activated this plan. God came to Moses. God came to his people. And it merited a response of worship. And they don't get busy. They don't go doing things for God. The first thing they do is bow to the ground and worship him. See, worship is the human response to a holy God. And a God like the one we see here and in Exodus deserves our attention and our response. Because again, this God doesn't just come and rescue us from slavery. He comes and rescues us into a life See, at the end of the day, our greatest need is to be rescued, not from Egypt, but from slavery to sin, Satan, and death. And God has come to us in Jesus to rescue us from that into a life with him. That we can actually call the creator of the universe father and experience a fatherly kind of love that we can't find anywhere else. See, in Jesus, God has rescued us into a life with him. And so salvation in Jesus, what God has done in Jesus is about so much more than just getting a ticket to heaven. It's about a life with the God of universe, a life in his presence, a life that is summed up as worship, that all of our life is lived as a response to this great God and what this great God has done. We have this rescue in Jesus. God's made a way for us in Jesus to experience this. And God is going to make a way for his people to experience this more fully in the Exodus story. See, a God like this deserves our attention and response. And the only response to this God, this God who is so worthy, is worship. We were made to worship him. We were rescued to worship him. But here's the problem. We don't always worship God, but we worship something or someone else, don't we? See, we we all worship something. We all worship something, anything that your life or my life rises and falls upon is something that you worship. So much so that David Foster Wallace, he was a novelist and in a a commencement address he gave, he actually talked about this and he said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what? To worship. See, we humans, we're worshiping beings. That's how God made us. It's hardwired into our DNA. We can't help but look for something to give our devotion and our attention to. It's built into who we are. And so the question is not if we are worshiping, but what we are worshiping. It's how we're made. We're beings that worship. And so a good question to ask is, what has my worship? What has my worship? What is my life rising and falling upon that if I have it and it's going well, life is good? but if I lose it or it doesn't go as well as I want that my life doesn't go so well, what does your life rise and fall on? That is a good question to ask, to investigate what you are actually worshiping. And so I encourage us, encourage you to investigate, ask those questions and see where those questions lead you. Because some of us, we need to recalibrate our worship. See, we're following Jesus. We like him and his teaching. We maybe even love him, but something else in our life has pushed him out and has our attention and our devotion more than him. could be another person. could be your job, money, sex, power, your phone, acceptance and approval, whatever it is. If it's not Jesus, it can't carry the weight of your worship. He wasn't made to. Only Jesus can carry the weight of your worship. Only Jesus is worthy of your worship. So ask, what has my worship right now? Ask and see where it leads. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you are following Jesus and you need to figure out what has truly got my worship. But maybe today you're here and you're not quite there yet. You might be skeptical about Jesus. You might be skeptical about this whole thing still, and that's okay. Keep coming. Keep searching. But I wonder if there's a restlessness within you that you're trying to, to feed, that you're trying to bring rest to. See, all of us experience some level of restlessness. And I would encourage you, if you are experiencing that as you are listening today, don't ignore it because it's there for a reason. In fact, it was actually put there by God. See, in a part of the Bible uh, just after Exodus in a book called Ecclesiastes, it actually says God has planted eternity in the human heart. That there's something in the human heart that longs for eternity, that longs for God to be connected to the transcendent, to worship something that is worthy. And the reason that it's there is because God put it there. And this this longing, this, this ache in our souls, it makes us look for and search for something to put that restlessness to rest. Our relationships, our jobs, our experiences, our degrees, accomplishments, and accolades, the things we own and have We look to those things, but what we find eventually is that even if we get that, even if we hold on to that and we find that, it's fleeting. And it never fully satisfies. And the result is is that our life could be summed up by the line from the song by the great theologians, you too. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I have it. I thought it was it. But it's still not it. Because I'm still so restless in my soul. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Does that in any way describe your life? Does it in any way describe the feeling you have that there's something t- more than this? That There has to be something that can fill up this emptiness and quiet that angst within my soul. If you feel that way, it's because that restlessness is meant to lead you to God. Augustine, a famous theologian, said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. See, that restlessness In you is something that only Jesus can answer. It was something that only God, Yahweh, could answer for his people in Egypt as they waited, as they hungered, as they hoped for deliverance out of the situation they were in. And so maybe today the first step towards you finding rest for that restlessness in your soul is to take a step of worship. To go to our YouTube channel and listen to or sing along with some of the songs that we have there to go out into creation today and witness the beauty and the wonder of what God created, all of it pointing to who he is. Go worship there. Maybe it's listening to your favorite songs about God or, or reading a book that stirs your affections for him or reading your Bible or praying, going for a walk with someone you love and talking about God. All of it is worship. All of it is what God created you and rescued you for. And God's rescue in Egypt And his rescue in Jesus, it all points us to this one reality, that we were made to be in the presence of God. We were made to worship him. And you and me, all of us, we have the privilege to enjoy that if we take that step of faith toward the God who is worthy of our worship, the God who moves towards his people, reveals himself, who will rescue who will do mighty things in his power to see that rescue happen. This God deserves our worship. And the only question we have today is, will you worship him? Will you worship him?